everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Burrell. Please join me every month as I share the beauty, the nature, the culture, and adventures of the Great Lakes, America's fourth sea coast. Today, our show is about climate change and the lake they call Gitchigumi with Dr. Jay Austin from the University of Minnesota. We all know that climate change is impacting our nation every day. Stronger and more frequent hurricanes, drought, floods, extreme heat. But how is climate change impacting our region, our Great Lakes? Well, Dr. Austin is a super smart coastal physical oceanographer and limnologist whose recent work has focused on the long-term effects of climate change on large lakes. Dr. Austin will help us understand the impact of climate change on the lake they call Gitchigumi. Hey, Dr. Austin, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Helen. I hope all our listeners were able to listen to our last podcast on grape growing and winemaking in the Great Lakes with Sherry Holloway, author of The History of Winemaking in Michigan, and with Ed and Dustin Heineman, a father-son duo of Heineman's Winery on South Bass Island, Ohio. The podcast is now available on the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your pods. Go to CoastalNewsToday.com to check out the amazing catalog of other podcasts hosted on ASPN related to our coastal resources. With us, as always, is our trusty engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Helen. How are you today? Doing very well, thank you. How about yourself? Pretty good, thank you. Well, Tyler lives in Texas, but he's learning a lot about the Great Lakes through our podcast. So, Tyler... The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the Great Lake they call Gitchigumi. Now, what lake would that be, Tyler? I don't know for certain, but can I can I make a guess? Absolutely. I'm going to guess Michigan. Ooh. Superior, they said, never gives up her ah. dead. <laughs> so uh, I was going to say my work is not in vain, but clearly we have a little more to do. So it is true that Lake Superior is called the lake is called Gitchigumi, named by the Chippewa. Um, and today it, our, our podcast is about climate change in Lake Superior. But we know that Dr. Austin can talk about much more than that. In our last episode on winemaking in the Great Lakes, I, I thought it was so interesting, Tyler, because we talked about related subjects that honestly I didn't expect would come up. For example... We learned that the state of Michigan was the first state to ratify the 21st Amendment in 1933, which repealed the prohibition of alcohol. And frankly, from our conversation with Sherry Holloway, it didn't sound as if Michigan embraced prohibition even from the beginning. Now, our guests also admitted that there might have been a lot of bootlegging, or a little, and smuggling going on since the western end of Lake Erie and the Detroit area are next door to Canada. We also learned that prohibition did not prohibit a person from making their own wine as long as they didn't sell it. So the wineries in northern Ohio sold and shipped grape juice to people who made their own wine. In other parts of Michigan and Pennsylvania, grape growers survived by selling grapes to Welch's, the famous jelly maker. However, prohibition did put a lot of wineries out of business. And our guests from Heinemann's Winery in Ohio showed that their family did sell grape juice but really survived because of years earlier they had discovered caves under their property including a giant geode called Crystal Cave, which is filled with celestite crystals that even today people can tour. I've been there. You can actually walk into it. It's so amazing. We also learned about native grapes known as Vitis riparia. This type includes Concord grapes and Niagara grapes that originally grew wild. Now, I subsequently read a story on a Michigan State University website that French explorers discovered wild grapevines along the Detroit River as early as 1679. 
The first known grapevines to be planted in Michigan were planted at Fort Pontchartrain to Detroit, Fort Detroit, by Commander Antoine de la Moth Cadillac in 1702. In a letter written to dignitaries in France, Commander Cadillac reported on the fort's progress, which included details on the planting of a vineyard. I also read that the River Raisin in southeast Michigan was named by French explorers due to the abundance of wild grapes found along the river's banks. At the end of our winemaking podcast, we all had a conversation about favorite wines from the Great Lakes. Sherry said that she liked dry Rieslings, yes, I said dry Rieslings, of northern Michigan. They were her favorite. Now, Dad, Ed Heineman, noted that the naked Chardonnay was worth a try because it didn't have the oaky flavor that many people, including me, don't really favor. But Dustin Heineman said that the Niagara wine was his favorite because it tasted like a fresh Niagara grape. Well, Tyler and I admitted after the podcast that we would love to try some Niagara wine. Lo and behold, Dustin Heineman sent to us a box of wine, including a Niagara, a bottle of Sweet Concord, the Lake Erie Winged Victory Chardonnay, and the Lake Erie Island Chablis. Now, Tyler, this is the moment of truth. Did the Niagara wine taste like a fresh Niagara grape? I really liked the Niagara wine. And I, yeah, I mean, yes, it did. Yes, on the whole, it's a very grapey wine. I agree. Yeah, it's it's an interesting wine because it doesn't taste quite like anything you've had before. Sure, it is a bit sweet, but not cloying. Um, the, the wine is very clear, hardly a tinge of yellow. Um, you indicated that you, you made it into a spritzer, and I, I appreciate that. I think that is a great way to, um, to um, fizz it up, so to speak. Yeah. Was it, I guess it's good as a spritzer. Well, you know, here in Texas, it can get awful hot. And on an afternoon, on, say, a Saturday, uh, a wine spritzer goes down real easy. And <laughs> I have to say that this Heinemann's uh, Niagara wine proved to be just a delicious mixer. It's a light beverage, you know, for an afternoon. I, it's perfect here in Texas. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I hadn't had Niagara wine in a long time. So in my memory, I thought it was just like a afternoon sipping wine. But this is far more sophisticated. And honestly, I'd have it anytime. It is definitely a, a cold white wine. Um, but it was it was really good. Now, the, um, the um, sweet Concord kind of uh, threw me for a loop. Because I thought it would be like, like drinking Concord grape juice. And it just wasn't. So for me, when I started the sip of the Concord, the sweet Concord, it was very sweet. But then the kind of the flavor that stayed in my tongue was more sophisticated and flavorful. And it kind of just sits on your tongue. Just actually, I liked it more and more. Um, and then the um, Chablis, in my memory, was a super sweet one. And it just wasn't. Um, it had kind of an herbal um, flavor to it. And I know there's no rosemary in it. But in my mind, it or in my taste, I kind of felt that an herbal back flavor. I thought it was really great. Before we move on to the Chardonnay, though, can we just talk about the bottle of the Chablis? Oh, sure. This thing is beautiful. Oh. It is a blue glass bottle. Yeah. I don't I don't see that much in wine uh, where I come from, but uh, just a very cool looking blue bottle. I like that. Mm. Makes really great sea glass, but of course, you're not supposed to break them. But, you know, you, you kind of hope you find that blue glass on the beach. Um, yeah, that was pretty good. And I, I kind of wondered how they named the Chardonnay, the, you know, the 
winged victory Chardonnay, where that came from as well. Well, it has a statue on the uh, bottle, on the label. And I'm not familiar with it, but I it, actually, it's the Victory Monument. It says here, Helen, the Victory Monument in Putin Bay. Oh, okay. That, All right. I, I got caught. One would think I would know that. And where is it? I feel really embarrassed. It must be in the like the town park. That's so funny. Well, there you go. The Winged Victory Chardonnay. Yeah. Well, they were great. And um, it was a real treat. And uh, um, we'd hoped that we kind of secretly hoped we'd have wine and we could have talked about it on the last podcast. But uh, even better, we got to we got to taste it at home, um, got to take our time with it and even get to talk about it today, which was super fun. And as you all know, I'm doing everything I can to get Tyler to understand the breadth and scope and wonderfulness of the Great Lakes. And um, I think there's a, a great way to do it. And so thank you, Dustin. It was a wonderful touch from home and a taste of the Great Lakes. We really thank uh, Heinemann's Winery. This episode of North Coast Chronicles is sponsored by Dr. Sandra Knight, founder of Water Wonks, LLC. Water Wonks provides strategic and technical support to public and private interests in water resources, the environment, science and technology, and disaster resilience. For more information, go to waterwonks.com. That's water-wonks.com. Hey, Dr. J, are you still with us? I'm here, Helen. Great. Well, thanks. So, like I said, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. I was looking at your bio, and you are one busy scientist. So we're so glad you could take time to be with here with us today. So I'm going to start off with the most important question up front. You're with the University of Minnesota. So you, have you ever met Goldie the Gopher? I'm actually at the University of Minnesota Duluth, so I'm more familiar with Champ the Bulldog. Oh, golly. Well, um, there you go. <laughs> Have you ever met him? Hang all out? The, all the dinner? Time. Yeah, exactly. Take him for walks. <laughs> yes, well, you should. Um, you did share, like I said, you told me about your background, but could I bother you to uh, share with our listeners um, about your background, how you got to the University of Minnesota? And I, I, I saw that you were an MIT guy. I was, yeah, for graduate school. So I did um, uh, undergraduate degrees in math and physics and went to a, a joint program between uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, uh, where I did a PhD in physical oceanography. In other words, using the, the laws of physics to understand how the ocean works, if you want to think of it that way. Um, my wife is a chemical oceanographer who's interested in the uh, geochemical makeup of, of uh, oceans and, and lakes. And we met at Woods Hole. And we spent some time bouncing around looking for a pair of positions at the same location. And uh, in 2004, the University of Minnesota Duluth uh, advertised for basically the two of us. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to get the two positions. Uh, we made the move from saltwater to uh, freshwater uh, and haven't looked back. Uh, it's been a, a really great experience being here um, working at the Large Lakes Observatory. Oh, well, I'm sure that everybody's thrilled that you're there, brought your expertise to Duluth. Um, have you ever gone out uh, to the lakefront and watched the ships come in? I can watch them from my living room, yeah. Well, one of the amazing things about being in Duluth, Duluth is a very uh, steep uh, banked city. Um, and so I like to say everybody has a nice view of the lake. Uh, so so yeah, it's, it's actually astounding to sit basically in the middle of the continent uh, and see ocean going vessels um, passing in front of your living room. 
Yeah, it, it's it, Duluth is a really pretty town, and the the waterfront is really spectacular. So I'm so glad you get to enjoy that. I I read that one of your projects um, up there was to place a set of moored observing platforms in Lake Superior to better understand the thermal structure of Lake Superior and how it varies across the lake and how it varies from year to year. Now I know a, a wee bit about thermal structure or thermal clines, which is that transition layer in a water column between warmer mixed water at the surface and cooler deep water below. I'm presuming that you are assessing the state of thermal layers in Lake Superior? Yes. So that was a, that's a great introduction to sort of how lakes, uh, freshwater lakes at least, are set up. And so in the summer, uh, the density of water, how much room it takes up per unit mass, um, depends on the temperature. And so in the summer, uh, and I think if, if you've ever gone swimming in a small lake, uh, you you can swim in nice warm water at the surface. And if you dangle your toes down or you, you dive deeper into the water, you often find cooler water down below. So what we're really interested in is how that sets up from year to year, um, the timing of, of when the lake starts to form this warm layer at the top. And it turns out fresh water does a really weird thing. Uh, in the winter, uh, and again, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds on this, but in the winter, uh, the lake does the exact opposite, where you actually have slightly warmer water below and then very cold water uh, right at the surface. So the, the opposite of what you would expect. What we're interested in is the lake trans transitions between these various states, and it does so at different times during the year. And one of the things that I've been very interested in is this progression towards earlier and earlier onset of those summer conditions. Um, well, I was going to ask you how you compare like the lake, because it's a pretty deep lake, like superior to the ocean, but it sounds like you cannot, given the fact that the thermal layers are reversed. So so when you're looking at Lake Superior, are you kind of comparing it to other big lakes or just to itself? Or to can you even compare it to other Great Lakes in the Great Lakes? That's a, that's a, that's a really good point. Freshwater systems have some things in common, indeed, with the ocean. Um, but there are other things where they are very distinct. And so um, we often use the lakes as sort of a test bed for, um, for understanding pr processes that go on in the ocean um, in certain cases. Whereas, for instance, this idea of, of a lake stratifying in different ways is there isn't a, a clear analog uh, in the oceanographic, in an oceanographic context. You know, Lake Superior is, is a very you know, globally significant lake, the largest lake by uh, by surface area in the world, one of the largest by volume in the world, um, but it's it's just one lake. And so one thing that I've participated in um, in the last several years are large collaborations, large global collaborations, taking thermal records from not just Lake Superior, but lakes around the world to try to understand how climate change is distributed globally. In other words, we tend to find that uh, high latitudes are warming faster than, than equatorial latitudes. Lakes in the middle of continents tend to be warming faster than lakes that are more coastal. Uh, and so we can, we can show that the Laurentian Great Lakes, of which Lake Superior is one, and lakes in Northern Europe are among the uh, fastest warming lakes in the world. So um, uh, Dr. Austin, I read that you started the observing buoy work in Lake Superior in 2009. So I guess you got a couple of years of observations. What are, what are you seeing about Lake Superior? Is it getting warmer? Are there other things we should know? 
the primary source of data um, that we're using right now uh, is uh, surface water temperature data that's been collected by by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And they've had uh, surface meteorology buoys in Lake Superior since about 1979. The thing about studying climate change is it's really difficult, it's really not advisable to do with relatively short time series. And so, you know, I've been here since 2005 and I've had a pretty active program in the lake since yeah, 2009, 2010. Um, that decade of data that I've collected is really not enough to, uh, to say anything definitive about climate change. What is important about the work that we've done here is that that long record that goes back to the 70s that NOAA's collected is just at the surface of the lake. What we're doing is extending these long sort of monitoring or observational programs to not just measure temperature at the surface, but measure it throughout the lake. And just as importantly, measure it all year, all year long. So the NOAA buoys, and uh, we actually operate surface meteorology buoys here at UMD as well. Those buoys have to be taken out uh, in the fall because the lake ice is over partially or, or entirely uh, each year. Uh, and the buoys can't withstand being out uh, in, in the ice. And so we deploy our buoys in April, May, depending on uh, our ship schedule and uh, ice conditions. Uh, and we recover them in October. I'm just scheduling our recovery crews right now. But our subsurface moorings, the ones that measure temperature throughout the water column, those we leave in all year. And so one of the things I'm really most excited about, about what we've done here at UMD um, over the last decade or so is really developed a much better picture of the lake throughout the calendar year, especially in the winter. Well, you know, I, I, people know from listening to my podcast that, you know, I'm, I'm really tied to the maritime transportation system, and I, I couldn't help but keep thinking about any information that you have that contributes to uh, the way in which uh, vessels operate or the way in which our, quote-unquote, blue economy um, is impacted by, um, by climate change or the weather changes or patterns is all really important work. Um, <clears throat> you know, the EPA climate change indicators for the Great Lakes you can see the water levels going up and down from 1860 to the present, which I think is a pretty amazing timeline. Um, and right now, the current levels look a lot like they did in 1860. So what gives with that? Because people, you know, we it, were impacted, but are water levels even really impacted at all by climate change? Or are there really other factors we should be looking at? Water level is a tricky one. Uh, and the reason I say that is that climate models are reasonably good at predicting what we expect to happen is with regards to air temperature. And so we have, you know, a number of scenarios depending on how we as human beings react to the climate change issue um, that all show um, air temperatures increasing to varying degrees depending on our, depending on our policy actions. Precipitation is a lot more difficult to forecast in these long-term models. And so as the lake levels are tied pretty closely to the precipitation over the watershed, it makes it relatively difficult to, to forecast in any, um, uh, in any sense uh, where lake levels are gonna go. Uh, and so, you know, in the last, if, if 
we were having this discussion eight years ago, we would be sitting here talking about the record low levels that we're experiencing on Lake Superior and, uh, you know, and all of the impacts that that has. You have to light load ships, as I'm sure you're aware, because they can't get through, um, you know, the, the Duluth Shipping Canal is, a, is dredged to a certain depth. And as soon as the water levels drop, you can't put as much stuff on your boat. Uh, but now we're suddenly worrying about, and then and if, and I'll, I'll say it, with low lake levels, people who have docks and stuff like that. If you're a marina, uh, maybe you can't put your docks in because there isn't enough water. Uh, the last several years, three or four years, we've been experiencing record high levels across the Great Lakes. Uh, and that poses its own set of problems, coastal erosion and, um, and, and coastal flooding, things like that. And so one thing we're seeing is just a lot more of these extremes um, uh, as opposed to some uh, monotonic or, or one-way trend towards higher or lower water levels. I don't think you'll find, I think if you were to go to Ann Arbor and talk with the, the folks there that study water levels, I think they would be reluctant to tell you uh, where things are going to stand 20 years from now. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, um, the island in Lake Erie where I'm from, uh, back in the 60s, late 60s, there was a, a new development on the other side of the island. Uh, and my father kind of chuckled and said out loud, those guys are crazy to build over there. They're going to be, it's a marsh over there. Well, for 30 plus years, they enjoyed a great life over on the other side of the island. And then the last few years with high water, people were having to put on high boots to walk to the front door of their house. So in every house that had been built there <clears throat> you know, over the last 200 years, none of them got water because they were built in historic places where there wasn't high water. So um, it is, it is, I can imagine it is hard to predict and Perhaps we have to look at snowpack and, and precipitation. Um, so uh, uh, I had uh, the great good fortune of in March of 2013 to ride a Coast Guard icebreaker through um, an ice-heavy winter where the ice was very thick and very extensive in the lakes. And it was out of lakes in Lake Superior. Or was it Lake Michigan? Lake Michigan. Um, you've done a lot of work in this area. What's going on with ice coverage? And what do you think the long-term trend is? Yeah, so I, I could talk about ice all day. Um, winter conditions are really interesting. Ice is one of the things that makes them interesting. And we actually know remarkably little um, about uh, ice on the Great Lakes. You would think that that was something that scientists had wrapped up a long time ago. But direct observations of ice um, uh, are, are extremely rare. Most of what we know about ice and ice cover trends, we know from satellite observations rather than going out and making direct observations. And so you're talking about the the polar vortex winter would be my guess if you were out in 2013, late 2013 or early 2014, um, where we had basically complete ice coverage on Lake Superior, which doesn't happen very often. And so one thing that we've noticed, and so th these measurements of ice cover actually go back to the early 70s, uh, either from aircraft observations or from satellite observations. We've seen a progressively uh, we see progressively lower ice um, on, on Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes. Uh, Lake Superior is particularly interesting uh, because the amount of ice that we get each winter varies dramatically. So if you're on Lake Erie, uh, which is a relatively shallow lake, so it's not that hard to cool it off, um, Lake Erie forms 
almost solid ice. It's almost completely iced over just about every year. There'll be the occasional warm year where it doesn't quite ice over. Um, Lake Ontario, which is quite deep, uh, but also in a slightly warmer climate than we are, basically rarely forms much open lake ice at all. And so those are the two extremes. Lake Superior is deep, but it sits in a relatively cold climate. We're much further north um, than the other Great Lakes. And we have years like the 2013, 2014 winter or uh, 2009, um, where we have complete ice coverage on the lake. And then other years like 2012, and I, I have to go and look to see exactly which years these were, where we have almost no open lake ice. You'll see ice like in the Duluth Harbor, you'll see ice in Shawamigan Bay, um, Whitefish Bay, these you know, shallow fringing bays. But on the open lake, uh, we see no ice. Um, and the thing that's fascinating about that is the difference between that one of those high ice years where you have people going to the, uh, the Apostle Island uh, ice caves or you have people um, ice fishing and recreating um, off of uh, Brighton Beach here in Duluth um, and the shipping season is impacted because of all the ice. The difference between one of those high ice years and a low ice year can be due to differences in average winter air temperature of just two or three degrees. Uh, and so it's extremely sensitive to these very, very small changes in the uh, overlying uh, climate. What's the biggest danger? I can think of some like uh, evaporation or what's the biggest danger of reduced ice coverage in a winter or in the long term? Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of subjective. Um, you know, there are, there are certain things where, you know, ice provides a refuge for, um, for spawning fish and things like that. Um, but the, the, the lake will, the lake will still be here without ice. It's just that that ice is one of the things that defines the lake in some sense. It gives us, a, it, it's one of the characters that the, the lake has. And um, I don't think that, I'm not sure that things would be all that different if ice didn't form. We have, again, we have winters where we have little to, to no ice on the open lake. Um, but it's more sort of a harbinger of uh, climate change. It's a very visible manifestation of, a, of, of the slow change in climate over time. Yeah, I, I know you're not an ichthyologist, but you must talk to a few. <laughs> and um, gosh, have, are you hearing anything about, you know, locations of, of fish or types of fish or moving in different places? I realize we have some locks in places, so it's not like they all just move automatically from one lake basin to another. But do you have any colleagues who talk about this and kind of compare notes? Um, I, I guess the one thing I would say about fish uh, is one of the reasons, you know, so we, we're seeing um, one of the great threats to the Great Lakes in general uh, is invasive species. And the other lakes are pretty dramatically impacted uh, either by, by mussels or, or um, various fish species. One of the things that keeps Lake Superior, we've we haven't completely dodged bullets. We still have sea lamprey and we have other um, issues, especially in harbors. But uh, as the lake warms up, um, we expect that it's going to become a more hospitable um, climate for some of these invasive species. 
Well, that totally surprises me. I mean, only because I always understood that a, a number of the invasive species came out of the Baltic. And I think of the Baltic as a cold water environment, recognizing, you know, so um, I'll be darned. Well, that's 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 interesting. I, I I want to build a little bit on your your the comparison between lakes in the Great Lakes, um, only because when I interviewed my brother in our second podcast, who's a retired Great Lakes freighter captain, and I asked him like which Great Lakes is the most treacherous to sail, and he reminded he said, well, you know, they're different because they have different geographical orientations, right, north to south, east to west, and so that that in itself made each lake unique in how it responded to weather and meteorological conditions. So should we presume, I mean, I I know you talked about some of the uniqueness of Lake Superior, but should we kind of presume that climate change is impacting each lake a little bit differently, or should we think of it more regionally? So I am the, so there's a a report that gets written uh, every three years called the State of the Great Lakes Ecosystem. Um, and I'm the author. They have subchapters for all kinds of different topics, um, from biology to social impacts to um, uh, physical state of the system. And I'm the lead for water temperature for the last three reports. One thing we're seeing is that, in fact, we do see the impact of climate change on all of the lakes, but we don't see it um, equally on, on all of them. Lake Superior, Michigan, and Huron show um, fairly robust trends towards warmer temperatures, whereas um, Lake Erie, uh, while it's warming, uh, is not warming nearly as quickly as the upper Great Lakes. Lake Ontario, oddly, we don't actually have enough data to reliably or confidently say something about trends there. But I expect that once we are able to collect enough data, you know, 20 years from now, uh, we'll see trends on, on Ontario the same way we do on the upper on the upper Great Lakes. Um, there are certainly regional differences um, between them, but but they are all responding in the same direction. Um, thank you. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I also saw in, saw in your bio that you were way into passive acoustics, and I have to ask, what is passive acoustics? So and this is this is I don't want to call it a hobby, but it is not my the the prime direction of my research. Um, I w- am just really interested in sound in general, and one thing that we know very little about is what does it sound like inside the lake. Uh, I'm just very curious and was able to borrow equipment uh, in order to measure uh, and record sound um, over um, over. Uh, over its entire seasons. And so what we find, and when we say passive acoustics, what we mean is we're not make, scientists use sound in an enormous number of ways um, to study water. Uh, We use it to measure currents. We use it for underwater communication. Um, uh, Geologists use it to map the bottom of lakes. But what I was interested in is if you just go out there and listen, what you hear? this is not a huge surprise, but the two primary um, primary signals are passing boats, passing ships, um, and uh, uh, wind-driven waves. One other thing that has become uh, prevalent in Great Lakes fisheries research recently is the use of acoustic tags on fish. 
And so they put a little tag on a fish and you have a, a network of, of monitoring stations and you can track where fish go. We don't, however, know a lot about how sound is transmitted through the lake. And so there haven't been a lot of studies done on, on how far sound travels, for instance. And so one of the reasons that I've become interested in understanding the passive acoustics of the lake is to develop a better understanding of that acoustic environment, how sound is transmitted um, through freshwater. Well, um, that's pretty cool. I almost thought perhaps we'd hear you know, something like a whale sound. And then what do you go like, say what? So I, I just, I, I have a, uh, I'm a co-author on a paper that's currently um, being reviewed, uh, written by a, a postdoc here at UMD. Um, and in addition to the ship sounds and the, um, uh, and, and waves, uh, we do actually have evidence that there are, that, that fish are insonifying as well. Wow. So we, we can actually pick that out of those signals. Oh my gosh. Now it, it, that's just because of the way they move in the water, right? It's the sound of their movement through the water. Or are they actually making a sound? My understanding, at least, again, not the fish person on this paper, is that it's communication. Oh, no way. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, blown away. Poof. Wow. Can't wait to, to read more about that. That's fascinating. Dr. Austin, You we're, we started talking about uh, thermal layers, the thermocline and, and turnover. Um, and then you talked about the fact that freshwater um, is different. You have the warmer water below the thermocline and the cooler water above, basically, in the winter months. Um, I think that's how it was. But Lake Superior is such a deep lake. What's happening down in the, the deepest parts of the lake? Does it get turnover all the way down, 1,200 feet down? Yes. Uh, I was about to say, not very much. Um, so we have equipment at the bottom of the lake year-round, um, sometimes in multiple locations. And it's um, it's what we call quiescent. Um, it's very, very quiet. Currents are relatively weak. Um, you don't see huge fluctuations in temperature. Um, but during the transition seasons, when we're going from summer stratification, where we have that warm layer on top and cooler water below, uh, and the lake, you, you'll hear the expression, lakes turn over. Um, and it's a bit of a misnomer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow it. Um, the, that turnover does, in fact, mix the entire lake. So... And then when you go from that winter stratification through the spring and you warm up the lake, again, the lake is entirely well mixed. So the, the big project that I'm working on right now has to do with what goes on in Lake, in, in lake Superior in the springtime. Uh, and so as you're going from that, what we call negatively stratified with the cold water sitting on top of slightly warmer water below into uh, the season where we have normal positive stratification that we're all more familiar with. Uh, I'm really interested in that transition. And what we observe is a process called convection, um, which um, is driven by um, the warming surface. We're shining the sun on the surface of the lake and it warms up. We will see water warming at the bottom of the lake about six hours after sunup. And so 200 meters down, um, you actually start to see the water warm, um, not because the sun is shining through 200 meters of water. Uh, most of that sunlight is being deposited in the top maybe 10 or 20 meters of the water. But because these this stirring process 
is so vigorous in the spring um, that it basically completely mixes the lake every day, every time the sun comes up. And so there are seasons, there are periods of time in the spring and in the fall where the the deep parts of the lake are actually pretty dynamic. Yeah, I think it was in our first podcast, I, I made note of the, when I was just talking about the Great Lakes generally, you know, just some points about them and said that you could take the uh, Empire State Building, put it down in the center of the deepest part of Lake Superior and the, the tippy top, you know, antenna might be showing out of it. So um, I just can't imagine that the turnover goes down that far. I, it sounds like it's in terms of getting like what your winter is going to be like or what the fall is going to be like and in terms of Lake Superior as a big dynamic um, lake, like you said, the, the largest surface area in the world. You know, is there is it just the wind across the surface, um, you know, that makes, you know, makes the lake really pick up? What are some of the other things that uh, – is it just wind really and – the fetch, as they say, the you know the amount of room you have across the water surface. Um, are there other aspects that one should look for, like um, red flags that go up if you were out on the lake, or you know want to know what's going on with the lake? Um, what are some kind of telltale signs that you may have a, a big storm coming through, or it might be a, a a stormy fall, or it might be a very cold winter? Sure, I'm not I'm not sure about. Um predicting what's coming for the following season. But I, I will say that uh, one thing in the last several years, especially here in Duluth, that has exacerbated the impact of storms are the high water levels. And so uh, we had storms in 2017 and 2018, um, uh, where we had big nor'easters in late October, I think in both years, where they were big storms, certainly, but they weren't like historically large storms. But Duluth just took an absolute beating. The lake walk was completely torn up. The canal park, which you uh, referred to earlier, that the sort of the lakefront um, shopping and tourist district, um, just got completely hammered because the lake was, you know, maybe a foot, uh, the lake was maybe a foot higher than they normally would be. And so the, the built environment, we, we don't have the resilience at this stage um, that we need in order to deal with um, these the, the high water levels that we've experienced the last few years. So that's, I mean, that's, that's just one aspect that I can think of off the top of my head where it can exacerbate the, the impact of these large storms. Doctor, uh, m when I had interviewed my, my brother, we were talking about harbors that he went into um, um, to uh, pick up Taconite or something. And he happened to mention that Two Harbors was a harbor or port that just never froze. Um, why is that? I had not actually heard that, I'll be honest. Um, there, are no, there are no really major rivers near there that might uh, provide, um, you know, a, a lengthened season or something like that. Um, yeah. And so the, this idea that, um, you know, reduced ice cover is one of the likely consequences of climate change in the long term. Um, and people are aware that, you know, that we, the, the locks are all shut down in January and reopen a few months later. Um, there is talk that the, uh, you know, reduced ice cover could eventually result in a longer shipping season. Although it's, it's also my understanding that 
one of the reasons they shut everything down is they have a very strict maintenance schedule that they adhere to um, and that they, they need to make sure the locks work all the time um, because you know even a short shutdown in um, in that access um, can be really uh, economically damaging. Yeah, you should have my job. I think you got it down. Um, um, that's true. That you know that um, the, the Corps of Engineers runs the locks in Sault Ste. Marie, and um, you know they do take a lock. And, and to operate them in that harsh climate, you know, isn't going to be easy. So, and also, just because you don't have full ice coverage doesn't mean you don't have ice. Um, you don't have burgies out there. They say you know chunks of ice to sail through. You don't have ice covering your your vessel and so there's a lot more to it than just that but um i i found that interesting because he said gee if it wasn't for the locks you know they could run year round well i don't know that that's the case but um i, I think we you may have i'd love to find out more about that i mean you may have a new research project for somebody for a grad student on why is it that two harbors doesn't freeze i'm i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to learn about that i was not aware that that is the case um and I'm not, I'm not implying that that we're suddenly going to be running shipping uh, year round. Certainly, you know, the, the thing about ice and climate change is that I don't think anybody thinks that ice is just going to simply go away. I think what we're going to find is that we have more years like uh, 2012, for instance, where there was very, very little ice on the lake and fewer years like 2009 or 2014, where we had very high ice cover. And so there's there's a tremendous amount of natural variability from year to year, um, on top of which is this trend towards um, towards uh, a, a warmer a warmer lake. Well, further to you know subjects that need some research, um, if you could wave the wand and have all the money in the world, where would you put it right now in research um, in your area or uh, Superior or UMD or the region? What do we need to look at? That's the sort of question we all spend a lot of time thinking about: is where where do we put limited resources um, and so one of the things I would like to see is uh, a better year-round understanding of not just the physics of the lake, but the lake ecosystems. And so getting out on the lake and studying it in the winter is really difficult. Uh, it's not like a small lake where you can, you know, take a snowmobile or walk out and drill a hole in the ice um, and, and study a small lake uh, that way. And it's not like the Arctic, where there are purpose-built icebreakers that go plowing into the ice um, to get researchers to where they need to go. Uh, we sit in a sort of uncomfortable middle space between those two. And so the sort of work that I do, measuring temperature or currents, um, understanding ice behavior, those are actually relatively easy compared to the job that biologists and chemists have, where they really need to be out on a boat for most of the stuff that they want to do. What I'd like to see is a progression towards more automation, where we could leave the sort of equipment that's interesting and useful to them out in the lake year round, um, so that we understand not just what's going on at times that we can get out on the lake, but we understand what's going on all the time. Yeah, you make a really great point because the impact of winters um, on the system is big. And if they change, like you said, uh, just a, a wee bit, it could change the ecosystem. That's a really great point. And I, I suspect uh, kind of any remote sensing, uh, while helpful, it doesn't really address some of the deeper questions, perhaps. And I don't mean... <laughs> 
literally deeper. Thanks so much for mentioning the the State of the Great Lakes report that comes out every couple of years. Uh, the last one was in 2019. They're, they're a big deal. Um, and if folks don't know, that's a joint project between Canada and the United States. And um, um, I'm, I'm just so glad that someone with your expertise is participating in it. Um, um, we do look to those reports to tell us, you know, where funds need to be um, uh, committed, uh, the kind of research that needs to be done. Um, and folks like you who are really impassioned um, about your work um, just really makes a difference. And um, grateful. I also want our, our readers to know that you can, you know, find out more about um, the state of the Great Lakes generally, and um, you know, read Dr. Jay Austin's work. The University of uh, of uh, Minnesota Duluth is um, really lucky to have you. Um, so I just want to mention um, real quickly. I, I looked up. Um, number of wineries in the Duluth area since we started with wines and maybe we can end with wines. I'm interested to see that there's a lot of wineries and that cider is a, is a big deal up your direction. So Duluth prides itself on its uh, beer breweries um, of which there are many. Um, and then we've recently added a couple cideries um, and there's actually a, a, a Vicra distillery. Um, in Canal Park as well. So we are, we're well appointed for uh, here at the West End of Lake Superior. Yeah, certainly no lack of things to do. Are you an ice fisherman? I am not. I really need to, to, to um, get out and do that at some point or another, um, just for the sake of being out on the ice. I love, in, in high ice years, I love walking out on Lake Superior. Um, I find it um, simultaneously terrifying and fascinating to be standing on, you know, eight inches of ice and over, you know, 50 meters of water. And were you like put a, start a, like a hot pot or a heater, you know, to keep yourself warm on top of the ice? It does seem uh, counterintuitive for sure. I know that, but uh, I imagine it's fun. I, I want to ask you a question because, um, and I don't mean to go back to my brother, but because he sailed up there so much, I just see some corollaries. And he said one of the most wonderful things about sailing was getting to see the Northern Lights. Have you been able to see it up there? We have at times. Now, I've not been out on the lake. It's it's sort of funny for the amount of time I spend out on the lake. Um, and, you know, we're out when we're out. We have a the University of Minnesota. Uh, Duluth operates uh, the uh, research vessel Blue Heron. Um, I actually dropped equipment off there this morning before um, before joining you here, um, they're off with a group of students for an orientation cruise today. But the, the RV Blue Heron uh, is an 86-foot um, uh, ex-Grand Banks trawler uh, that the university bought in the, the mid-90s, early 90s. And we, spend, we can spend a week at a time uh, without coming ashore uh, with a crew of six science and uh, five crew, I think, so, so 11 people total. Um, can spend a week at a time out there. And so we're out there 24-7, and I love going out on the deck and looking at the stars, but for one reason or another, I've never seen the aurora. Yeah, I, I was surprised that you could, but uh, I hope you get that chance. It sounds really great. And, and uh, you know, I spent just a short amount of time on a hero board on a research vessel out of Ohio State University um, in Lake Erie. So um, for those folks who think they would like to get into limnology, oceanography, boy, I, I hope you get the chance to work on a research vessel or be part of it, do some research on it, live on it just a little bit. I think it's just, uh, it's, um, it, it's special. You know, it's a, it's a special time and um, 
it, it's a, it's kind of a privilege to get to do that. It's a really unique environment. Um, being in close quarters with people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing. One thing that we are really fortunate with, as far as the blue hair is concerned, is that we have a, a really good-natured and hardworking crew that are really interested in the success of the science that we do while we're out there. Well, I have no doubt that that's the case, especially if you're uh, leading the team. Um, gosh, Dr. J, thanks for taking um, time to talk about lots of different things. We we learned that uh, fish talk in the water <laughs> in the in the in the Great Lakes, or at least in Lake Superior. We we uh, found out there's a lot of uh, breweries and and places to visit uh, in Duluth. Um, that the view is wonderful. Um, that um, that um, the Great Lakes and Lake Superior are harbingers, are, are easy for me to say, of uh, climate change and that we should be watching them. And I'm, I'm really grateful to learn that you're working, um, collaborating globally, you know, with other scientists who are also looking at lakes in their regions um, because uh, it's, it's, it's a telltale sign, as I would say. So um, I'm sorry I got uh, Goldie the gopher wrong, that uh, Goldie does not live in Duluth, um, but uh, it sounds like um, it's just a, it sounds like just an extraordinary experience you're having up there. I'm so glad that uh, um, your talent is uh, at uh, uh, in the Great Lakes. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I truly uh, learned a lot. I really appreciate the opportunity. So thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting North Coast Chronicles. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor on North Coast Chronicles by emailing me at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time for the Great Portage of 1829 when we hear how the Welland Canal was built around the mighty Niagara Falls. Until then, take care, be good to one another.